Uh, we'll uh... all right. Maybe that'll be a little bit less overwhelming. I'll try not to shout too much. So, um, so we'll look at numbers starting in chapter sixteen. Probably familiar with this story about Korah and the others. Um, let's start by reading verses 1 through 7. Who wants to read 1 through 7 for us? Bob, go ahead. Now, Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Levi, with Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action, and they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron, and said to them, You have gone far enough. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face, and he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to himself. Even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Do this. Take censers for yourselves, Korah, and all your company, and put fire in them, and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. All right, what's our initial impression to what they're doing here? It's interesting to note that this is uh, the great-grandson of Levi. So he's not disconnected from the priesthood. He's not the high priest because um, that was reserved for Aaron and his sons. Um, but in the Kohathites, we'd have to look back at Exodus. I believe they were in charge of the temple service, but not the priesthood itself. Um, there seems to be a measure of jealousy and a sense that they were the ones who should decide what they were going to do among the people of Israel. Any other things that you observe from these first seven verses? Yeah, Rob. Okay. All right. Uh, let's read 8 through 14. Who wants to do that? Go ahead, Bruce. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, your sons of Levi, it is not enough for you that God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the 
congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister them and that he has brought you near Korah and all your brothers, sons of Levi with you and, and are you seeking for priesthood also therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord but as for Aaron who is he that you grumble against when Moses sent his sons to Dartham and Abraham the sons of Elah but they said we will not come up it is not enough that brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness. But you would also want it, it over us. Indeed, you had not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us inheritance of the fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up all right. What's Moses' further response here to Korah? Rebuke. Okay. What does he remind them that they have opportunity to do? Okay. Mike? Yeah, I mean. Right. He says he's brought you near. You still serve in the tabernacle. You're still ministering before the congregation. Just because you have this job and not that job doesn't mean that you are lesser in God's sight. Um, fascinating, I think, anticipation of the attitudes that we see at the church at Corinth. If I don't have this spiritual gift, then I'm not important. And because I have this spiritual gift, I'm more important than you, and all of those sorts of things. And God's point in giving the spiritual gifts was not so that we could fight and say who's the best and all have the same thing, but so that we would all have different roles to accomplish God's purpose in his church and thereby be mutually edified. Um, Paul talks about in Corinthians, if the entirety of a person was a huge eyeball rolling around on the floor, that wouldn't be very effective. The entirety of person was one nose, like dragging itself along the ground. That wouldn't be very effective. And um, in an even greater sense, here are people who have, um, you know, let's say in their society they thought the right eye was better than the left eye. Moses' point is, you guys are both eyes. What are you complaining about? And they said... Uh, it's interesting what they say in verse 13. You brought us out of the land flowing with milk and honey. And by that they mean Egypt. And you haven't brought us to the land flowing with milk and honey. And by that they mean the land of Canaan and all the things that God had promised. Um, and their attitude about would you put out the eyes of these man as, men as well seems to be sort of this idea of you're going to you know, one-up us as well. You're not going to deceive us. We won't be deceived. But they're already deceived because they're thinking of Egypt as a paradise and the land of Canaan as a horrible place. And God's been providing for them in the wilderness all this time. Food, water, everything that they needed. Uh, it doesn't talk about it in this passage, but 
And in another place it says their shoes didn't wear out for the 40 years they're walking around in the wilderness. My shoes didn't even last two years that I bought. And theirs lasted 40 years. And God was taking care of them that whole time. And they forgot all of that. And you're not going to deceive us. But they had already deceived themselves. Look at Moses' response in verse 15. Don't regard their offering, Moses says to the Lord. I have not taken a single donkey nor done harm to any of them. And then the test in verses 16 through 18 of who will um, minister before the Lord. And they did that. Korah assembles the congregation against them. God's glory appears. Verse 19, the Lord speaks, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. So let's ask our first question. Did Moses have a right response to their initial sin of rebellion? Someone said that he was, uh, Rob said that he spoke diplomatically and patiently with them. He didn't immediately condemn them, although they were right to be condemned. What about this further accusation that they make against him? If somebody basically came up and accused you of greed and of stealing things away from everyone else and just being a horrible person, would you, how would you respond? You don't have to give the Sunday school answer either. What would you be tempted to do? Take it personally. Take it personally. Notice what's going to happen next. God says in verse 21, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. So the people who are standing in outright rebellion because the rebellious leaders have stirred them up against Moses and Aaron's authority, those people and those rebellious leaders are right there and God says, step aside, I'm going to wipe them all out. Problem solved, right? Moses and Aaron don't say yes. Look at verse 22. O God, this God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? So God says, I'm going to rain down fire. I'm going to consume them utterly. I'm going to destroy them. And their response is, do they all deserve it? Think about Jesus' response at the cross. What did he say? Father, what? Now, there's a couple of them that knew what they did. The Pharisees and the religious leaders knew what they were doing when Jesus is crucified. They stirred up the people, and the people were led astray. Same kind of thing is happening here. A handful of leaders are stirring up the people, and the people are sinning, and they probably have some sense that if they're going against Moses, that's not the right thing to do. But they are also not deliberately sinning in quite, this, quite the same malicious, evil, selfish way that these men are trying to stir them up to. Now, I would argue that Jesus, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, extends even to some extent to the willful blindness and rebellion of people like the Pharisees, uh, including those like Saul, who later trust in Jesus and serve him faithfully. But in this instance, Moses and Aaron intercede for these people. Were they right to do that? What do you guys think? Okay. 
If you've ever heard somebody insult God's honor, they've made some blasphemous statement against God. Um, God's honor, maybe they've spoken blasphemous against God, or God's design. Well, if you really worship a God, would he leave a world like this in such a mess? You know, something along those lines. How would you react to that? Write that down. How would you react to someone taking God's name in vain, insulting God's honor, mocking God's creation? And then also consider whether you would intercede for other people nearby, maybe who aren't the ones speaking it, but don't seem to be saying anything against it. I think it would be good for us to pray for wisdom to know uh, a moment in which we should pray for God's judgment against sinners and when to ask God to spare other sinners nearby who are not being hard-hearted in that moment. Um, so I have one or two people pray for that. Um, I'll be right back. I'm going to go turn the microphone down so it's not quite so...
you look at um, the, we'll skip on down. I just, you probably know the end of the story, but there's just a couple of things I want to highlight. Moses says, this is the people, step back, verse 26. Moses basically says, here's the test. If they die a natural death, I'm not God's prophet. He didn't send me. If they die because they're swallowed up by the earth itself, then you'll know that this is of the Lord. As he finished speaking these words, the ground split open, the earth swallowed them up, all the men that belonged to Korah. And Israel fled, for they said, the earth may swallow us up. And there's these 250 men that had said, all right, who's going to be the true servant of God? These 250 or Moses and Aaron? Each of them standing there holding their fire pan, their censer with incense before the Lord. We're, we're the ones who are worthy to do this. We're just as worthy as everybody else. Fire comes out from the Lord and destroys all of them, burns them all up. Their pans fall to the ground. What's the response to that? God says, pick up the censers for they are holy and scatter the burning coals abroad. Let them be made into a plating for the altar. So all of the things that they are holding, the only thing that's left when they're consumed by fire from the Lord, gets beaten out to make almost like scales to go decoratively and, and symbolically on the altar saying, don't touch this. You are not worthy unless God has picked you. You can't approach this. So Eliezer does this, and it says, as a reminder to the sons of Israel, verse 40, that no layman who is not of the descendants of Aaron should come near to burn incense before the Lord so that he will not become like Korah and his company. Was Jesus from the tribe of Levi? No. Saul, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul is from the tribe of Benjamin. And then, um, but Jesus was not a Levite. So by rights, he had no place in the priesthood. Unless he, and yet Hebrews makes it very clear that he becomes the high priest before God on our behalf. On what basis? God goes back to an earlier order of things on the basis of an in, unending life after the pattern of Melchizedek who pops onto the scene in Genesis 16 or 19 and then immediately disappears. We don't hear anything about him again. He says, figuratively, without father or mother, without end of days, Jesus, according to that sort of order, God says, you're a priest on the basis of that. So if God picked the descendants of Levi to be priests, God can pick Jesus to be a priest on the basis of an earlier order that he had established. If you and I are not of the tribe of Levi, do we have the opportunity to approach God and offer worship before him? Yes. But only because of what Jesus did. Otherwise, we'd face the judgment that Korah and his men faced. So, I say those things to point out the anticipation of the ministry of Christ that makes it necessary for that barrier to be dealt with so that you and I can serve God as priests and sacrifice today. That, that barrier would be Jesus is the Son. 
he's the one who deals with the fact that there's sort of this separation made between the Levites and the rest of Israel. And it had to do with sin, and it had to do with holiness, and it had to do with God's choice of who would be his priest. So this is important because Moses and Aaron intercede for the people on the basis of the fact that they're led astray and deceived by Korah and the others. And yet, just a few short chapters later, in Numbers 21, what are they doing again? Look at verses 4 through 6. Who wants to read 4 through 6? 21, 4 to 6. Okay, why is God taking them the long way around? What's that? Okay. And in the verses right before, so cheating a little bit because I'm looking at the verses right before, um, they had got attacked and it discouraged the people, and so God didn't want them to be constantly attacked all the way over to Canaan. He didn't want them to be led astray. But yes, there's also... If their unbelief had not prevented them from entering in the land earlier, there wouldn't have been all of these problems. Um, what's their complaint in verse 5? It's not a new one, if you look at Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Okay. I find it extraordinarily amazing that they said, there is no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. What's miserable food? <laughs> Manna. So, I'm not trying to cheapen the biblical story, but you guys ever had a vanilla wafer? Yeah. Okay. If you were a kid, you loved it if your mom was like, yeah, you can eat the whole box. Assuming they weren't stale. Stale ones aren't great. And Don't ask me how I know. Sure, they got to pick up something that was far better than that every day to eat. That's what they're referring to as miserable food. So they're saying, we want to go back to Egypt where we're getting table scraps or nothing, even though in their minds it was a steak dinner every day and all the seasonings and spices you could want. We want to go back to that. We don't want this miraculous provision where we go pick up our food. It rains down from heaven every day and we go pick it up. We don't, we don't want that anymore. But here's the, here's the blindness of it. We have no food. We have no water. We loathe the miserable food you've given to us. God, I know you've given us something. It's not what we wanted. How many ever did that to your mom growing up? Not usually repeatedly, right? Um, but we, we act that way, right? Or we look in our closet. This is more of a girl thing, but not exclusively a girl thing. I have nothing to wear. 
You're like 20 outfits. What do you mean you have nothing to wear? What do we mean by that? No, no emphatic nudging, please. What do we mean by that? We mean I don't want the things that God has given me. Right? Now, it's, it's not a one-for-one one to say, I wish I had something different when we look in our closet or we look in our pantry. But I do think the attitude that says, God has provided for me, but God, you're not a good God in the way you've provided for me. Then we're starting to sound a lot like the Israelites. And what does 1 Corinthians 10 say we're supposed to do? Learn from their example in this chapter because their complaint was not ultimately about what they did or didn't have. What was it about? What were they saying about God? You gave me manna, but I don't want manna, so you are... They're being selfish. What are they saying about God and the way they're responding to Moses and God? Mike? Not supplying them their needs, what they feel is their needs. Okay. Not realizing what they really needed. Right. They're basically saying, you're not a good God. You don't care about me. Think about what God's done up to this point. Delivered them from the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. Got them out of Egypt in the first place. Plundered the Egyptians and made them rich from the Egyptians who were terrified of them. Then delivered them from Pharaoh's army. Then provided water and food for them in the wilderness. Kept their shoes from wearing out. Kept the enemies from attacking them. Kept them from dying of just the heat of the sun. They got a glimpse of the land and said, we're not ready. We don't want it. We don't think that this is a good thing. So a bunch of them start dying off. God still keeps taking care of them. And here again, they've said, hmm, no, God's not a good God. God doesn't care about me. So what's God's rebuke? God's rebuke is he sends fiery serpents and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Why does God use poisonous snakes? Short answer, it doesn't say. We can come up with all sorts of reasons. Yeah, it is a form of discipline. Notice the response of the people. Um, read 7 through 9 if you would, someone. Verses 7 through 9. Who wants to read that? Louise, thank you. No. So I was just, just think about what he, what's being said here. What do the people acknowledge in verse 7? Yep, we've sinned. Okay, what do they ask for? 
Okay? Specifically, what about the snakes? Take them away. Uh, Locke here, the guy who um, compiled this list of all the prayers of the Bible in the book that we've been, I've been using as a reference as we go through here. He writes this, Prayer was answered, although not in the precise manner the people desired. Their request was for the removal of the serpents and the avoidance of their evil. But I think what he means, their evil, the evil of the poison of the snakes. But God decided that the evil should be remedied, not by the removal of the serpents, but by a process which, while affording relief, secured other important ends. Here's an illustration of prayer being answered in a different way from what is expected or originally desired. What does he mean by other important ends? Any reference to this incident later in the Bible? Yeah. Jesus being lifted up. It says they'll look on the one whom they've pierced and they will live. Um, Jesus references this, for example, in John 12. He says, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. There's a crowd of Greeks standing there. There's a crowd of Jewish people. There's people from all sorts of ethnicities hearing him speak. If I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. You Greeks standing over there, you Israelites standing over here, you Romans standing over there off the way. Jesus is the Savior of the world, not just for the people of Israel, but for all of the different groups of the world, but for them to have the life that is offered to be delivered from, and again, I said I, we don't know exactly why the snakes, but I think Lockyer is on the right track. God did it because of the lesson that he's trying to show. What is it that brings death to all of us? Sin. How did sin come into the world? What does Eve do? She listens to the serpent. So as the voice of the serpent and the bite of the serpent brought and brings death, when the serpent is destroyed and Jesus is lifted up, bearing the curse of the serpent on behalf of the people who were condemned to death by it, then the sting, the bite, the poison of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law, and it's defeated through what Jesus does, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. So, we talked already a little bit, why do you think God answered Moses and the people in this way? I didn't give you much of a chance to answer it. I would say the short version is, because of the lesson that he's trying to teach them, the illustration that he's going to provide, and how it ties together the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. They thought that it was simply about the fact that they complained and now some of them were dying. God was making a much bigger point. So, write down how God has answered one of your prayers in a way other than you asked.
Let's pray now for God to remind us of the fact that he answers in his way and his time and for his grace to submit to his way of deliverance. Father, as we look at this story from the people of Israel, Paul made it clear to the Corinthians, who were Gentiles, much like many of us, that we were supposed to learn from stories like this. On the one hand, so that we wouldn't sin in the way that they did, accusing you of being an evil God, capricious, selfish, uncaring, like the gods of the pagans, when in reality you have provided and continue to provide for your people down throughout history in amazing and remarkable ways, delivering them from famine and bringing them safely away from the presence of their enemies and providing their basic needs and all of these other kinds of things. When we come before you, we often do it in a way that says, do what I want in the way that I want right now. Father, help us to have the humility from looking at this story to say, what we want is often not what we need. Even in situations where the evil that we are experiencing is our own fault, that didn't take you by surprise. And the thing that you're accomplishing, even in your discipline of us, as was pointed out in a passage like this, is often pointing us to something far bigger than immediately solving the problem, the mess that we've gotten ourselves into. You took a situation in which the people complained and some were dying from the bites of snakes and you used it as a type anticipating what Jesus would do to save the world. Where the curse of sin that the serpent brought way back in the beginning would be broken. Not taking it away, but bringing victory despite it. Father, in so many situations in our lives, we want the deliverance to be removing the situation. Take away the pain in my limbs. Take away the heartache in this relationship. Take away the sickness that plagues someone that I love. Take away the conflicts at work. Take away whatever it is. Father, I think in most, if not all of these instances, what you do is not to take those things away, but you give us Jesus. Paul says, if you have given us Jesus, will you not also freely give us all things? And having received Jesus, we don't have to fear that anything can take us away from you. Death, life, enemies, need, want. Any of these things that one of them by itself seems a huge obstacle that there's no way for us to escape from. If we have Jesus, we don't have to be afraid of that thing, whatever it is. And it's different things for each one of us and at different points in our lives. And yet you have said, my grace is sufficient for you. Nothing can separate you from my love. I will finish the work I began in you. You don't give us the opportunity at this point in life to know Will we be delivered semi or seemingly miraculously as 
many were from the peril or through the peril. But you have said, as Paul reminds us, God has delivered and will yet deliver us. And at one point you did that by taking Paul out of the reach of those who wanted to kill him. At another point you did it by delivering him over into their hands and bringing him home to glory. Father, help us to see that Jesus is all the provision that we need. that against Satan's schemes that bring death, we have the power of your word through the power of Jesus who is the word. We shouldn't be arrogant, we shouldn't be careless, but we don't need to be afraid. Help us to contemplate these truths, I pray, Lord. Turn over to uh, Numbers chapter 23. You guys familiar with the story of Balaam and his donkey? We make much of the donkey, probably should make a bigger deal about the fact that Balaam was being foolish and selfish and greedy and all of these sorts of things. Passages like this raise questions like, In chapter 23, verses 15 and 16, Balak, the enemy of the people of Israel, said, uh, summons Balaam, come with me here. Um, We couldn't curse them over there. Let's try cursing them in a different spot. Balaam says to Balak, stand by your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. Then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, return to Balak and thus you shall speak. Why do you think God kept speaking through Balaam? Why is there a separation of what? So, Balak is standing here. He's the pagan Canaanite king. And Balaam says to Balak, stand there by the burnt offering. I'm going to go talk to God over here. And God talks to Balaam and says, here's what you're supposed to say to him. And sends Balaam back over to talk to the Canaanite king. Right. Yeah, here's what God said. Okay, now I'm going to come. So how did God respond to Balak's goal of cursing Israel? Look at verse... uh, Balak says, what did God say? 
Balaam takes up his discourse and says, Arise, O Balak, and hear, give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? God has said, I've chosen the people of Israel, so the fact that you really, really hate them doesn't change God's mind at all. God's not like you. You can't buy God. You bought his prophet, but you can't buy God. Balaam says, I've received a command to bless. When he's blessed, I can't revoke it. He has not observed misfortune, nor has he seen trouble. God brings them out of Egypt. There is no omen against Jacob, nor divination against Israel. At the proper time, it shall be said what God has done. The people that rises like a lioness, as a lion, it lifts itself. It will not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Then Balak said to Balaam, Do not curse them at all, nor bless them at all. But Balaam said, Didn't I tell you whatever the Lord speaks, that I must do? The Balak said to Balaam, Please come, I'll take you to another place. And then again in chapter 24, Balaam's like, well, maybe if I don't talk to God, then I can curse Israel, and then the guy won't be mad at me for all this money he's paid me and buying me out as God's prophet. He takes up his discourse, and God turns his words again to bless the people of Israel. So, here's the sobering truth for me. There are moments in each of our lives where we are Balaam. And before we uh, think that that's a high and exalted position, think about the order in this story. God, random servant, Balaam's donkey, Balaam, in terms of like order of priority. And then the fact that Balaam is trying, pretending to serve God and is used by God but is driven by greed, and we see from other passages, there's the, the son of Peor, the, 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 what Balaam gets them to do. He's like, I can't curse them, so I'm going to drag them into sin. He's the one that provokes the people of Israel to start the whole intermarriage with Canaanites who are worshiping idols thing. So, write down how God has worked through you or someone you know, despite, not because of you faithfully following him. Or that person faithfully following him. Could be you had a heart full of greed or some other sin, and you gave a track to somebody and that person got saved. Could be some person that you know clearly doesn't seem to be following God, and that person happens to say something about being a Christian and God uses that somehow. I think if we all think hard enough, we can think of an example from our own lives or somebody close to us.
Let's have one or two people pray a couple of things. That God would use us. We would not be standing in God's way like Balaam was. And God using, having to like push us aside essentially to accomplish his purpose. And then also this idea of praising God that he's gracious both to disobedient servants and to his people even though enemies are conspiring against them. Let's have one or two people pray about those things now.